We have an energy crisis. We don't have enough energy today. And yet people are saying that the answer is that we have to get away from oil and gas and invest more in renewables. It will only make this problem worse. This is not a carbon issue. This isn't a global warming issue. For the time being, we need efficient sources of energy to get us over this hump, and then we can debate the rest later. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Adam, welcome back and thank you for spending some time with Jim and I today for a look at the world of energy and other natural resources after what can only be described as an interesting time to be involved in the financial and commodity markets. How are you doing? It's been about five months since we last spoke. Uh, busy time for you, no doubt. Yes, it feels like it was only last week, so it's been very, very busy. The time's just been flying uh, by, but uh, happy to be back and thank you for having me again. Certainly lots to talk about today. Yeah, there's quite a lot to talk about. Um, so it'll be a fun conversation, no doubt. Now, since we last spoke, um, quite a few things has happened. So before we dive into where we are today, maybe for you to kind of talk about some of the things, some of the policies, some of the decisions that had been uh, sort of been decided upon over the summer. What are the things that stood out to you? And where does that kind of leave us as we head into the winter months, do you think? Well, I think it very much depends on where your listeners uh, are, are listening from today. You know, there's a huge uh, split in the world right now. If you're based in Europe, I think you feel very much the uh, threat of uh, energy shortages as we move into the winter. I know Germany is largely consumed with headlines in that subject and Switzerland as well. And I was in Germany and Switzerland in July and it very much permeated the feelings there. I was in France on holiday and vacation in August and France seemed to be okay. You know, August in France was still it was still a fairly uh, you know relaxed place to be, but I think as we move here into the fall and winter begins to approach, uh, you know that's certainly on everybody's mind. And in the United States, I think people will largely feel insulated still. You know, gas prices, gasoline prices are high, uh, and the headlines here certainly are dominated around that topic. Uh, but but. To a large extent, you know, that's been manageable. Um, you know, families can do what they need to do uh, on the margins. And I don't mean to downplay that, but I do want to really highlight for our, the American listeners that the feeling of an energy crisis in Europe is is very, very real and very, very uh, foreboding. And, and here, it's definitely hardships. Uh, it's definitely inflation that's running high and that's been very difficult, but, but it doesn't feel quite as, uh, as somber as it does in, in, in Europe. And so, when we talk about specific policies that have been set and things of that nature, you know, what I'm still shocked by uh, is the fact that um, people don't really seem to appreciate how we got here and they don't really seem to appreciate decisions that will help us uh, get out of some of these uh, energy crisis issues. And what I mean by that is, of course, we have the situation in the Ukraine with Russia, and of course, that's leading to huge dislocations and shocks as we move into the fourth quarter. Uh, but we ultimately have to blame also a huge reduction in capital spending in the oil and gas industry over the last decade uh, to get us to where we are today. And we're not seeing anything that suggests to me that that's changing. You know, we're not seeing big increases by the energy companies. Uh, and in fact, when you look at the um, language from several of the administrations around the world and the governments, they remain as antagonistic and as uh, negatively predisposed towards the energy sectors I think they ever have before. Uh, and so, and to me, that's very worrisome. That's very worrisome because we have the fourth quarter here. We have the winter, which we'll talk all about. I do think there's the potential for real choke point in the winter months ahead. Uh, but ultimately the problem here is the fact that we've diverted $2 trillion away from the upstream energy business. And until we put that back in the ground, we're not going to fix the problem. And on that front, we've made no progress since we spoke at all. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. And and by the way, um, it's funny how you mentioned this thing about Europe. I would say even in Europe, um, I get the sense that there's a little bit of a difference between how people are, are feeling it right now. Uh, you're absolutely right. Many countries, we are feeling it. That's probably the most talked about topic. Um, but I did hear, um, I think actually in France, they still have this price cap on for a little while longer. So people haven't seen the bills yet. Um, and, and maybe there are some other countries where that's the case. Now, before we get into more kind of um, where we are today, I still want to stick with um, the time or around the time we last spoke, sort of March, April time. Back then, a lot of people, probably if I'm fair, you know, inc- including myself, looking at all the headlines, um, we're talking about, um, you know, the potential of commodity super cycle. And we saw prices really go up significantly into early March. Do you have a sense of why that may not have played out? And I use the word yet because it could still play out. I'm just saying it didn't quite play out as many people uh, were talking about at the time. Um, and also I'm interested in, and of course, whether you think it's it could be in the card still. Absolutely. And, you know, I suppose it's funny as a natural resource investor who's been doing this for, I've been doing it 15 years. My partner Lee's been doing it for 31. So we've, we've seen a few cycles and, um, you know, the idea that oil, uh, where it is today, you know, in the high 80s, 90s, and yes, down from 120, you know, is is bearish and is, is a sign that there's something wrong with the oil markets um, because prices are too low. You know, it's not a super cycle. Uh, you know, you, you have to shrug your shoulders. You, you do recall it wasn't only two and a half years ago that energy prices, oil prices turned negative. And in really, even on month-end basis across the board, we had the lowest energy costs in real terms in human history in the second quarter of 2020. And here we are, and in the last four or five months, we've had the highest energy prices in human history. So from having gone to the lowest energy prices in human history to the highest inside of two years, I mean, I, I'm gonna say that that's still uh, a fairly strong cycle that we're in. Um, things have pulled back a little bit. We've seen a huge amount of uh, speculative positions that have that have really started to bet against uh, oil and, and natural gas to a certain extent, which I think is a very foolish move on the part of the paper traders. And we can't forget that the size of the paper oil market is it dwarfs the size of the physical market. So if you start to have all the speculative traders act in a certain way, you can have uh, actions that begin to uh, that begin to overwhelm the true the true underlying fundamentals. But that doesn't really last over the long term. And over the long term, the supply and demand dynamics really come to the fore. Uh, and I think that's happening here again. So look, where are we in this cycle? First of all. I do take one issue with the term super cycle. And what I mean by that is a super cycle in its, in its definition suggests it's different than a regular cycle. It's a super cycle. So there's something different about it. And I think what people mean is that it'll go on kind of forever and it'll just keep prices higher and higher and higher. And it won't. We're in a cycle just like any other commodity cycle. Now, I don't think that that's a bad thing. And in fact, it means that we can look back on some of the other cycles and determine what makes them move and where are we and are we closer to the end or the beginning. And when I do that, I think that we're very much at the beginning. And why do I say that? Well, commodity cycles don't tend to end with energy at 4% of the S&P. The long-term average is 10 to 12%. And the big cycles tend to reach their crescendo highs between 20 and 30%. We're at four. In fact, we're two standard deviations below the average. We haven't spent any money in the energy sector. That tends to be what undoes the cycle, is when you finally have committed so much money because everyone is so convinced that we'll need uh, more oil and gas. You know, recall back in the last cycle, there's all this talk that we were running out peak oil. We were all going to go back to living, you know, in caves and what have you. And so the industry just spent and spent and spent. And what they found was the shale, which was incredibly productive. So they spent a lot and they, you know, were able to, with that spending, develop a very prolific asset. Um, we haven't seen anything like that today. You know, in fact, if you look at the rig counts and all the shale plays, they're up a little bit. But um, I think that the, the the fairly widely held view now is that the shale has not responded the way you know the industry would have would have expected even six or eight months ago. We said that we th- we said that it's largely a function of the companies having drilled out the best parts of the shale, and I think we're starting to see that 
play out in the data. You know, you're just not getting that response. So it's a cycle. It'll be over one day. It'll be over when the $2 trillion plus whatever has to be accrued in the interim gets spent. Um, tends to last about 10 years. It'll happen in a period of huge market frenzy. You'll see IPOs, secondary offerings, bond offerings, everything like that in the oil patch. We haven't seen anything like that to date. Um, so yeah, I think I think you know this is this is a pullback. You get pullbacks in cycles all the time. And for those that want to uh, trade this market, uh, I really would have to say I'm not the right person to talk to. But for people that really want to play out over a cycle and try to make you know a long term investment decision, I think the fundamentals are very very much intact here. Yeah. Now, before I bring in uh, Jim, uh, because he's got uh, a lot of interesting uh, questions lined up, I know. I did want to ask you one more thing. Um, so I'm sure you're also familiar with the little green chicken on social called Doomberg. Um, and they do some great work uh, and they have written a lot of good stuff also about energy. But there's one thing that I've heard Doomberg talk about. And that is this idea that the best thing we can do to quote unquote punish Putin is to flood the market with oil so that prices just collapse. But... And and that may or may not be true. I don't even know if it can be done, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm thinking here, and you are obviously much closer to uh, the energy companies, I mean, to me, that sounds like yet another policy where it would be the energy companies that would pay for this. Um, so uh, so I'm not so sure that it's a um, something they would embrace. But what, what's kind of your sense of where you sit in terms when you hear proposals like this that may sound logical, Right, but there are some consequences here that may not be very pleasant for the people. I mean, and it's in—it's almost like the energy sector, and maybe that is the why—the reason why we haven't seen any capex. Uh, they always have this in front of them, where people are going to do things to their uh, their industry that is not very productive for producing profits. Look, I, I think it's all. I think it's very, very tricky, and and lots of you know interesting questions and lots of interesting hypotheticals here. But to me, it would come back to something a lot more simple, and just you know who who exactly would be flooding the the market uh, with all this productive capacity? It's not clear to me uh, if you look at the shale companies that they're in a position to do it. I mean, it's not clear that the North Sea is going to do it, or I think it's quite clear that the North Sea won't do it. Um, you know. Offshore Angola, there's been some success, but they're not in a position to start to flood the world's oil market to punish Mr. Putin. Um, that leaves, I suppose, the Saudis, and we've heard comments from them over the last six months that, in fact, they're running out of their spare capacity. That's something that we talked about two years ago and and wrote about again more recently. Um, you know, a huge, huge, huge state secret for you know the last 50 years really is how much can the Saudis ultimately produce. They, they said in a, in a in a press conference that that in fact you know they're they're basically now uh, approaching their their productive limits. The fact that nobody really picked up on that to me was astounding. Certain energy circles did, but but most people didn't. Um, and and let's not forget that that for the time being, and and I do fully admit that they make for strange bedfellows, but for the time being, you know, Russia and Saudi Arabia do seem to be aligned in this OPEC plus group. I would not count on that lasting forever, by the way, but for for right now, they certainly are. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really see where this oil would come from. The only place that it could come from would be the strategic petroleum reserves. And of course, we're already doing that. And I think that that is frankly leaving us very, very vulnerable. Um, the fact that we've already depleted and diminished our strategic petroleum reserves. And I think the hope there was to put a cap uh, on on oil prices. I think the hope was to try to flood commercial inventories, right? So you have all these governments that retain these big government strategic stockpiles. Let's release all that oil. It'll find its way into the refiners' inventories, into the commercial system. And that should have a limiting aspect or, or limiting uh, effect, effect on price. Yeah. And, and it really, you know, didn't, um, you know, maybe you could argue this pullback here of, of 10 or $15 was the result of that. But, you know, it certainly did not push oil back into uh, a level where no one's talking about it anymore. And that's done already. You know, there's talk now that that should be rolling off in October and perhaps it'll be extended. But but the truth of the matter is, unfortunately, we don't have much left in the way of these strategic reserves. So I, I think that, you know, probably would uh, hurt Putin uh, to 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 cap oil prices uh, on a global basis. I just don't really know how you do that. Yeah. Well, I know Jim want to dig into that side, so I will pass it on to you. Yeah, I'm just going to continue to pull on that thread. I mean, obviously, um, 
Look, uh, the market is essentially essentially a, a function of supply and demand. So let's start with the supply side and then get over to the demand side afterwards. Um, on the supply side, you, you wrote uh, in, in great detail. And you, I love when you put pen to paper because you guys really dig into the numbers. Um, so I'd love for you to, if you can, uh, to the extent you have those numbers available, kind of speak a little bit to the numbers, uh, you know, Again, there was that hot mic issue that you referred to with Macron and Biden speaking that didn't make the news nearly as much as it should have about uh, the Saudis likely not having the capacity to release anymore. Can you speak to uh, you know any numbers or just broadly where you think those reserves are? Why we think they can't release anymore? Other than that hot mic issue, um, you know, you, you write eloquently about that in some of your pieces. I'd love to hear about that. And then uh, the other on the other supply side, the SPR. Where we stand in, in drawing down the SPR, uh, how much more room do we have to release, um, et cetera, just for, for our listeners to really understand the supply side, um, you know, current dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. And here, I'll, I'm going to go back a couple of years just so, so it really kind of puts things into a bit of context. And I do have some numbers. I, I, don't, I don't have all my materials here. So so bear with me. And, and uh, it, sometimes we'll talk generally and sometimes we'll talk specifically. So the oil markets call it, you know, round numbers, 100 million barrels a day. It's a bit higher than that. It's 101. But for, for most people, I think 100 million barrels a day is, is basically a, a, an easy way to think about it. Um, supply and demand have both been growing in the order of magnitude of about a million barrels a day per year. Some years it's higher, some years it's lower. When you have an imbalance in the crude market, you're talking about something where supply is running potentially 500,000 barrels a day above demand or vice versa. That would be a fairly big deficit or surplus. We've seen numbers much bigger than that. So coming you know, into COVID, obviously, that was a huge demand disruption. And so we saw uh, the market get really out of whack. And then coming out of COVID, we saw it equally out of whack on the other side. But but I think the key point there is we talk about a big market, 100, 101 million barrels a day. Um, growing at one, you know, 1%, give or take per year. Uh, but the price gets set on 0.1% of that entire market, right on, on a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. And so, so when we talk just to give everyone a sense of the scale of these numbers, the shales in their peak, you know, were growing between a million and a half and 2 million barrels a day. Um, you know, so they were for the last 10, 15 years, effectively, all of the supply growth in the world was coming from the shales. The rest of the non-OPEC world was declining, um, and then so, and then the OPEC block was, you know, forced to kind of respond at different periods of time. And and there was times when they did that fairly well and they kept the market in balance. And there was other times where they didn't. And so the two most notable times would be back in 2014, when oil prices, you know, pre that oil was a hundred bucks, even though the shales were really humming. And then after what they called the Thanksgiving Day Massacre, where OPEC came and said, we're not going to, Saudi said, we're not going to support uh, price anymore. We're going to increase production. We're not going to keep cutting to allow the shales to grow. Um, there's I, our personal view is that it was actually probably more geopolitical in relation to Iran uh, than anything. But nevertheless, whatever the case may be, um, that hurt the the oil price. Two years later, they finally cried uncle, um, and and they decided to in fact cut production uh, again, starting in 2016. And then of course in 2020 with COVID, uh, OPEC came out. They announced that they would in fact uh, cut production uh, in order to help balance oil markets you know with this unprecedented demand drop because of covid anywhere between you know five to ten million barrels depending no one really honestly knows and it depends if you take a moment in time or quarter end numbers because things evolved so quickly russia didn't want to go along with those cuts and so saudi arabia in an attempt to push russia in line sort of speaking it's like what you're talking about here decided that they would actually not only not cut production, but they would ramp up production, right, in April of COVID. And so, you know, obviously lots of people were focused on lots of things back then and everyone suffers a little PTSD, but we, we can't forget that, you know, in, in April of 2020, that's what helped put push prices negative because everyone had this collective gasp and they said, surely you have a swing producer. This is the most unprecedented demand event in, in 100 plus years and in the whole history of oil, really. And, and these guys are increasing production. Well, I mean, who knows what could happen to prices now? Since then, uh, everyone's been looking to the shales to see what the shales would do now that things have normalized after COVID. And the shales have been growing, but they haven't been growing by all that much. And the real driver of why they've been growing has been these huge inventory of what we call, or the industry calls, drilled but uncompleted wells. So these were wells that were drilled during COVID 
And then they said, we're not going to pay the extra uh, 50% of the well of the total well cost comes in completing the well. They said, you know, we, we've already had the guy drill it, but we're not going to, we're going to hold off on completing it, save some money and, you know, sell when we have um, less of a dire oil market. And so they did that. And in 2021, uh, they, they brought all those wells back online. Those are done now. So you're back to a normal level of these drilled but uncompleted wells. And so you look at the rig count today, the rig count's up. 45% from the low, still below 2019 levels by about 25, 30%. So it's still quite low, but up, you know, 50% from the lows. But the amount of wells coming online hasn't budged. It's because we're now have to complete one. We used to complete two wells for every well that we drilled, and now we complete one well for every well that we drill. So we're not seeing a huge response there. We're starting to see a lot of indications that the shale industry is saying to itself, look, you know, I have five, six, seven years left of really high quality drilling inventory that can make strong economic returns. And I'm not going to, I mean, if I double my CapEx, that becomes three years. You know, so if it's talking three years of inventory, I have to go and find a new play now to be able to backfill my plans three years from now. Why don't I just keep it at six, seven years of drilling inventory at the current rates? And, um, you know, I, I can have a nice leisurely uh, think about this and figure out what the next step for our company is. And I think that you're seeing that more and more often. And and frankly, Wall Street continues to reward that mentality. You know, Pioneer, which is probably the best run oil company in the shales today, and uh, they're in the Permian Basin, they announced that that perhaps at the end of 2023, they might think about adding another rig. And you know, they were inundated with questions from shareholders saying, well, how do I think about capital allocation? How do I model the dividends going forward? You know, all this type of stuff. So it's sort of like, what's the point? You know, the, the administration's still antagonistic. Your shareholder base still prefers you to return money. And, and you don't have all that much in reserve, except for a couple companies here and there. So I, I think that you know that's been a real disappointment. The rest of the non-OPEC world, forget it. I mean, the, the, just the rest of the non-OPEC world hasn't done anything in the last 15 years, and they're not going to do anything going forward. Maybe you get a little bit out of Canada, uh, you get a little bit out of Brazil, but you see declines in other places, and and that whole thing has just basically been net zero. And so that then leaves OPEC. And how much spare capacity does OPEC really have? And if you look through the different countries in OPEC, um, I think there's at this point a fairly broad consensus that really the only countries that have any spare capacity to speak of are Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and, and Iran. And together, how much spare capacity that amounts to is is widely, widely, widely debated. And you know. Bear with me here. I'll, I'll kind of go go back and give a little bit of a, of a history of you know Saudi because I think that that's the kind of interesting one. So Saudi Arabia stopped producing reserve reports like back in the 1970s when they nationalized the oil industry, and so since then, um, it's been anyone's guess. We know obviously what they produce because that number is a reported number, and and that ties with inventory levels. I mean, you can't you know you can't really lie about that for too long without somebody noticing, um, but how much they have in reserve or in their reserves, which is a geological concept. It means how much oil is still in the ground, in the deposits in the ground, able to be produced at an economic rate. What that reserve figure is, is anyone's guess. And the Saudis have kept that flat for basically four decades, despite the fact that they've produced, uh, you know, billions of barrels over that time. And so I think what they would say is that, yeah, we've been replacing barrel for barrel as we go. And you know, other oil commentators say, well, that's awfully convenient. You know, most companies and countries can't do that. But I suppose if anyone could, it's probably Saudi Arabia because they do have this unbelievable uh, geological endowment. Uh, so that's been the debate. And it's been a debate for a long period of time. Uh, a gentleman named Matt Simmons, who used to run an uh, energy-focused investment bank um, in the U.S., wrote a big book about it in 2005 called Twilight in the Desert, trying to determine what the potential Saudi field reserves might be. Um, he uh, concluded that he felt that Saudi was probably nearing its maximum production levels at the time, and and, and that per perhaps it would begin to fall uh, in the years to come. And that would obviously have a huge impact on the oil markets. And, and since then, you know, the data has been sort of uh, 
confusing a little bit because Saudi Arabia's production has basically kind of bounced around. So obviously, you know, the most dire predictions of running out of conventional oil and gas from OPEC haven't really come true. You know, OPEC is still a big force, but it's also not like Saudi Arabia has really increased production all that much. And, you know, in fact, they've gotten above, you know, 10, 10 and a half million barrels a day, kind of only once or twice. And it's never been clear if they're not selling some oil out of inventory when they're doing that as well. They claim to have 12 million barrels a day of total spare capacity, which means even if they have all of that, they're ta you're talking about, you know, million and a half barrels a day. So basically one year of what the shales had been growing in their, in their heyday uh, left. And we would argue it's probably not, not even that um, either. When Aramco announced their public listing and their bond offering a few years ago, they released a whole bunch of audited reserve reports and uh, again, raised more questions than they answered in some regards, but uh, you do notice a few things. Some of their biggest fields like Gawar, notably, which is their super major field, has been in decline now for about 15 years, just like Matt Simmons had said. Uh, and and secondly, you know, the total reserve figure, which is the, you know, what it all really comes down to, uh, they didn't really end up in an agreement with their reserve auditors. This is a very kind of strange thing, but the reserve auditors gave one number. Uh, I think it was, what is it, 160 billion barrels versus 260 in the, in the, in the, bond offering document and and you know i've never really seen that they, they they attached the auditor's report but it would be like if you you know went and had a company that audited and they said yeah yeah no we had our bank accounts audited absolutely well, yeah the numbers didn't agree with what we're showing in the balance sheet but they were audited uh, you know and that's kind of and, and that that's really what it came down to and and that difference tells you everything because the difference between the the lower and the higher figures really if you kind of get into the uh, petroleum engineering and the petroleum uh, dynamics of it uh, really would be the difference between whether or not they could go to 12, 13 million barrels a day or whether or not they're kind of capped at 10 and a half. So this has been the big backdrop. And I apologize for the huge, you know, uh, tangent, but that that's, that's the backdrop. And so you were referencing this hot mic issue. And um, back in, I can't remember when it was, probably June, I guess, uh, at the, at the, G7 or G20, again, forgive me. Yeah, June 27th on the G7, that's right. There you go. Um, Macron went and spoke to the American contingent and was picked up on a hot mic saying, well, I just got off the phone uh, with, I think he got off the phone with uh, MBZ in in, in the UAE. Uh, and, and, you know, yeah, he confirms that Saudi's tapped out. They can't go any higher than that. And, you know, oh my God, you know, again, for, for real kind of, people deep in the trenches here in, in the oil markets, this has been, you know, the, the biggest conspiracy theory ever. And it came out, in a, it's like a spy movie, the way it was you know, released on this hot mic. Uh, and then that was followed up again a couple of weeks later uh, when Biden went to uh, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and he met with uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And um, in, in a press conference following their meeting, uh, MBS said, you know, we're investing heavily and that's gonna take our spare capacity from 12 to 13. But after that, we have nothing after that. We don't even claim to be able to take our capacity above that. And so that was kind of an interesting moment because it was, it was really carefully worded, I think. And, and if you look, you know, the facts of that statement actually increases Saudi Arabia's spare capacity, right? They, they used to be at 12, notionally. Now they're at 13. But the language was really, really, really different. We've never heard anything like that from the kingdom before, this idea that we're tapped out. I mean, I think that that would be anathema. I, I would think you would never message it that way. And now all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're tapped out at 13. Um, so does that increase their spare capacity or does that lessen it? I suppose it's a, still a debate. But I, I think uh, the reason that, you know, you haven't seen a bigger response uh, is, is because of that. And the rest of the OPEC world, just, just to throw this in, because I think it's important too, you know, OPEC has a quota system. So they set how much the, this block of countries can produce. That quota gets allocated amongst the different countries. So obviously each country wants the overall quota to be low to keep prices high, but they want their share of that quota to be really, really high, right? And that that's why cartels are hard to keep together. And OPEC is held together now for 50 years. Every country in OPEC is producing below its quota. There's no reason that that should be the case other than than depletion, right? That everyone wants to cheat. They want to produce above their quota while keeping the whole group in check. And that's the, kind of the tension. They're all producing below their quota. So it begs the question, why not lower the quota? Uh, or, or, you know, is it is it a geological issue? 
before again, uh, thank you for kind of diving in. That was that was fascinating. Um, before we go on to the SPR in terms of OPEC, this is just uh, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but the question of Venezuela, right, largest reserves in the world, right? Most people don't realize that. Um, obviously, political issues there. A lot of it driven by the U.S. kind of uh, you know restricting uh, their ability to to you know invest. Um, I thought it was interesting as soon as uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, one of the first visits that Biden took was to Venezuela. Not many people are talking about that. Obviously, there are lots of lead times to get ramp up that investment. But what are your thoughts there? What are the odds of of some, uh, you know, if we get in a really hot spot here and we don't have, you know, the Saudis, let's say, are are really cooperating with the Russians, uh, you know, a logical thing for the U.S. to do and, and the West to do is to reach out and kind of uh, do a rapprochement with, with Venezuela. What are your thoughts, sir? Look, I, I think that Venezuela is really interesting. Obviously, if you go back, the uh, the Chavez regime nationalized uh, PDVSA, and that resulted in um, just an unbelievable, you know, gutting of that of that industry. And so you just saw this huge. And, and I remember this was really a story, kind of two or three years ago. The Venezuelan production numbers were falling so fast that I think it really shocked a lot of people. It, it's it's heavy oil. Uh, in fact, most of the U.S. refining capacity in the country that takes oil and turns it into refined products like gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel was actually built to accommodate heavier crudes from both Canada and Venezuela. And when we found the shale, which is light crude, we didn't have an optimized refining base. Um, so that was actually a bottleneck a couple years ago because we were losing all the heavy crudes from Venezuela and we were making all this light crude besides the point. But so, you know, it, it, it's not going to be turned back on overnight. It requires a lot of capital. That uh, industry has been uh, totally cannibalized uh, at this point. You know, the the machinery has been stripped and scrapped. Um, there's been a lot of damage to the Venezuelan energy industry, which is a real shame because that is, uh, as you mentioned, a, a huge uh, reserve and a huge asset base. But you know that's not something that you turn on overnight. You know, far, far from it. And and in the past, just just to play devil's advocate, in the past you've had issues with Petavesa and production has fallen, and then it has ramped back up. And so it is pot. We know it's possible. Uh, and in fact, I think it did surprise people that it ramped back up more quickly. But the industry has been down for longer this time. The reports of these cannibalizations have been worse. The Frankly, the the, the uh, macro backdrop in Venezuela has been worse. Um, and so I think that it's going to take a lot to bring it back. But, but you know, there's Venezuela, there is uh, Iran, and there is Iraq, and each of them present their problems, but they do have the ability to increase production if their circumstance and situations improve. And, you know, we do forget also that we talk about supply not being able to keep up with demand. Um, look, ultimately, supply and demand balance. You know, it's it's a it's a mathematical certainty. Uh, you can have inventory drawdowns to to provide more supply, or you can have prices that ration demand. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we're going to need some of these volumes, or we're going to have massive demand destruction. People say, well, isn't that bearish for the oil markets? Well, if you have demand destruction because you don't have enough supply, and so price becomes a rationing mechanism, that doesn't sound bearish that sounds like really high oil prices and 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 eventually we'll need all the sources that we can find um the question is just going to be when and, and none none of those three countries that i mentioned have the potential to increase production uh in inside of several years all right so lastly before we go over to demand uh spr right how much has it drawn down uh, where do we stand? Obviously, we're going into an election cycle. I don't think it's a coincidence that we've been full out, you know, releasing the SPR. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think you've argued, and, uh, and I agree that that it's a major reason for this pullback in oil, along with kind of the speculative positioning that we've we've seen. Right? Um, that's as intended by you know the U.S. government. Um, uh, how much more ability do they have to continue that post-election? Um, you know, can you speak about kind of the short-term uh, supply issues related to the SPR? Yeah, sure. So we've been releasing, um, we've we've released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at an unprecedented rate. The U.S. has been releasing about a million barrels a day for the last several months. Uh, the rest of the OECD countries have been releasing five hundred thousand barrels a day from their SPRs. Nobody else, China 
probably has a strategic reserve that no one really knows too much about. There, there's no other strategic petroleum out there. You know, everyone else, there's not even any other commercial inventories out there really. Most of the whole world other than the US and the OECD countries uh, operate sort of hand to mouth and they don't keep inventories of, of crude oil. Um, China's being an exception to that. But so, you know, how much farther can this go? So, so, so we made that decision kind of right following the, the invasion uh, of the Ukraine by Russia. And I think the hope had been that it would just completely put out this fire uh, of concern. And it did exactly the opposite as far as I'm concerned. All that oil got absorbed. It was all gone. And so when you look at commercial inventories for the first six months of the year, they normally build by about 500,000 barrels a day, and then they draw by the same amount in the second six months of the year. That's average, right? That, that's kind of the cyclicality and seasonality of it. And instead, they built by like 200,000 barrels a day uh, in the first six months of the year. So already, that would be a market that we would call in deficit, right? Versus seasonal averages, you're not injecting what you're supposed to inject. So you're, you're in deficit for that time of the year. Uh, but you know, you had a million and a half barrels from the SPR. Uh, so you should have been building by 500 plus a million. You should have been building by 2 million barrels. And instead you were building by like 250,000 barrels a day. So that is that is one tight market. Now we're going into the period of the year where we should be drawing by 500,000 barrels a day. And, and then, you know, we obviously are in deficit uh, because of a lot of different issues like supply responses and quite strong demand. So So can the SPR make that up? I mean, the short answer is no, they can't really make up uh, enough to, to, to offset the deficit that has presented itself in the first six months of the year. Can they ramp it up from here? I suppose they can for a period of time. I think we're probably at this point, off the top of my head, I think we're about probably 65% depleted on our SPRs. It depends if you take the high, high, high watermark, because you do forget that both Obama and Trump released from the SPR and sort of similar to the debt and deficit, people don't tend to like to re-add to the SPR after they've taken out of it. Uh, so, you know, a bit difficult to measure exactly where you're coming from, but you're about two thirds kind of gone on the SPR. And, you know, the one issue that I would like to start raising to people, and and, and I think it's really important, is, is, you know, the S in the SPR, the, this petroleum reserve was very, very strategic. It was put in place after OPEC used oil as a weapon in the 1970s. It happened twice. Once was when the US supported Israel in the early part of the 1970s. And the second was when the US was perceived to allow, to have allowed the, uh, the overthrow of the Shah uh, in the Iranian revolution. And in both cases, in order to, to punish the West, Saudi Arabia withheld oil from the market. And it created huge huge problems and you know it was before my time but but i'm sure many of your listeners you know gas lines and even in odd numbers on your license plates and you know it, it was a major 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 energy crisis uh, and it was largely brought about by those two uses of what they call the oil sword um and so you know what did the west do they developed a fairly elegant solution they did two things one one is fairly ironic they started the International Energy Agency. And they said, if we have a lot of transparency and a lot of data, and we publish all these reports, um, then I think that, you know, it'll make it harder to get sort of caught off guard again. The reason I say that there's an irony there is that the I, no one has done more than the IEA to really screw up the world's oil markets in the last five years, because they've constantly been calling, you know, for this surplus, uh, and they've been constantly saying how, you know, oil will be a sunsetted industry in five years time and all this type of stuff. And, 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 you know, it was only a couple years ago that they actually put out sort of a royal decree proclamation saying that, you know, we recommend that no energy company ever sanction a new upstream investment because that would effectively impair whatever dollars would be put to work there. Talk about getting something wrong. That's the agency you set up to help ensure security of supply in the West. So that's why I say there's a bit of an irony there. Um, and of course, the other thing we did is we set up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And what does that do? Well, what the Strategic Petroleum Reserve does is it says to any potential bad actor country, look, if you wanna cut off oil supply to our country, then we will be able to weather a storm for quite some time. And so like imagine, you know, back in the medieval times, if you're trying to lay siege to, to, a, to a, you know, remote little village, how much food that 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 village has stockpiled will really determine whether you lay siege to it or not. Because by the time it's all said and done, you'll have suffered a lot, 
you know, engaging in this oil sort as well. And, and what I mean by that, of course, if you cut off supply, you're cutting off revenue to your country. And so, you know, you'll be hobbled and, and the U.S. will be hobbled. And most people have said, well, you know, to hell with that. Let's just not use oil as a weapon anymore. And, and it's worked for basically 40 years. And the reason I bring all this up is not to be scaremongering, but I don't think enough has been talked about the fact that we have depleted that strategic petroleum reserve, and not in a time when the world is is really seems to be so, you know, aligned and calm and peaceful. And, and that really worries me. So I think we ought to stop doing that. I think we ought to say to ourselves, look, you know, Let's send the right messages and the right signals to the capital markets. Let's try to get money going back into energy companies. I mean, obviously we're energy investors, so that would that would behoove us, and you know, I won't try to pretend it wouldn't. Uh, but that's how we ultimately solve this problem here. Um, we, we've we've neglected this industry for too long, uh, and what we're seeing now is the implications of that. Before you jump into the demand side, uh, Jim, I just wanted to ask you. I mean, we've talked a lot about oil, and we've talked also about kind of the U.S capabilities in terms of production and so on and so forth. But what about the other liquid products? And I'm not an expert here, but I guess we have uh, things like natural gas, we have biofuels. I mean, where do they fit into that before we talk about the um, the demand side? Sure. And it's a great question because, you know, natural gas and oil are different uh, commodities. They have different dynamics. And, and in some regard, um, They, they do suffer a lot of the same uh, impacts here. And, and so the natural gas industry has also been starved for capital terribly over the last decade. Uh, I think that that's even more uh, reprehensible. And the reason I say that is that um, you know the oil industry has been starved for capital because of ESG concerns and hopes for electric vehicles. I think those hopes are misplaced and we can talk about that probably on a whole other hour long podcast. But for natural gas, I don't even know where these ESG people get off because for the most part, natural gas goes to displacing coal. So I think the feeling on the natural gas side of that, which, which would be a huge, huge, huge benefit to carbon emissions. You know, every unit of electricity generated by natural gas is half the coal, uh, half the CO2 of coal. Uh, I think there's a feeling that, you know, that's going down the wrong path. We don't want any CO2. We want wind and solar. That presents huge grid instability issues, huge energy efficiency issues. But I think that that's why it's gotten wrapped up in the ESG uh, nonsense that we've seen in the last few years. Uh, but yeah, so it's been starved for capital as well. Uh, the demand for natural gas has actually been growing uh, in excess of the demand for oil uh, because people do prefer it to coal. It, it's less polluting. So not only is it better for CO2, but in terms of air quality, because we kind of forget, you know, pollution used to be thought of as air quality and, you know, smog and and particulate matter in the air. And, and it's only recent that people are talking about, you know, CO2 is the main source of pollution that we have to worry about. But if you move from coal uh, to natural gas, you all of a sudden begin to see the sky again in places like Beijing and Shanghai and Mumbai and, and things like that. So, you know, it, it's a very, very good fuel and demand has actually been growing very, very strong. So so both both uh, oil and natural gas um, are, are have been impacted on supply and has seen strong demand. Natural gas is harder to transport around the world because it's a gas. So there's some in infrastructure bottlenecks that, that need to be worked out there. You need to cool the gas down to very, very low temperatures and then heat it back up. Uh, but, you know, the industry is working through that. It works with a bit of a lag. I actually wanted to ask one question regarding that before we move over to the demand side. Uh, you, you've mentioned that uh, you, you think that that there will be a convergence and, and not not in the distant future, but between North American gas prices and uh, European prices, which there's obviously a massive gap uh, in at this point. Um, you know, that obviously this is, you know, we're top traders unplugged. So, you know, A, how do you take advantage of that? And B, why do you think that's going to happen in, you know, an actionable short t time period? Yeah. And, and two great questions. It's something that, you know, I think really we got a lot of uh, attention and a lot of people calling in and asking us to, to kind of walk through it and whatever. And I think it's sort of funny because I would ask the question, why on earth are gas prices in the United States 90% less than they are everywhere else in the world today? Uh, you know, it, it's unusual that you get massive dislocations like that. I, I don't know what, and, and that's not subsidized, right? It's not like the U.S. government is subsidizing domestic gas uh, prices. Um, you know, if, if you if you go to Saudi Arabia, I don't know, I, I know their gasoline prices are very low there, but I think that's because the, the kingdom subsidizes that. Normally, most commodity prices, you know, arbitrage out and are fairly consistent around the world. And and so, you know, and I, I would ask your listeners, 
uh, instead of saying, well, that's so outlandish, can you can U.S. gas prices really go up tenfold? Start by saying, well, wait a second, is it really sustainable that you have an order of magnitude difference and a 90% less uh, lower price in the United States than in the rest of the world? The answer, of course, is that if you're a U.S. gas producer, you can't achieve that world price. You know, you can't say, oh, fantastic, you know, I'm producing in the Marcellus and I can see that in Europe, you know, they're they're willing to pay me $70 an MCF. So that's great. I'm going to sign a, a contract with the U European utility and sell my gas for 70. You can't get it there. It's, it's not there. It's in the United States. And so, of course, it needs to pass through pipelines to a liquefied natural gas facility, get liquefied, and then eventually make its voyage across. And to the extent that there's a bottleneck there, Again, if for the traders on your top traders unplugged podcast, you have what develops is known as basis. And so that means, you know, you 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 divorce the arbitrage opportunity is no longer possible. And so you have a you actually have a dislocation between the two and you have a basis risk. So the basis right now between world gas prices and US gas prices is huge. How big? You know, we've had a big rally here in gas prices, but you're still talking about gas that's in the eight to nine dollar range on the highest that we've seen. And we've seen gas prices spike as high as 200 in, in, in parts of the world and been sustainably at the 50, 60, 70 dollar range uh, in Europe and in Asia. And quite frankly, you know, would be even higher, but for the fact that you're now talking about furloughing um, industrial activity across Europe because you just can't afford it. So fine, um, you know, why would they converge? And and I think our, our thinking there is more to come at it from the question of, you know, an asymmetric outcome potential. If you do converge prices, you you could see gas prices in the US go up two, three, four, five fold really, really, really quickly. If you look at the volumes, probably not enough to fix the world's gas pro, uh, supply issue. So you would see it rise substantially and then stay there. When I look at the risk return of any investment, that's probably the highest upside potential. But, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion. So why would it? Why would we remove this bottleneck? Well, obviously, we could do it in a couple different ways. We could first um, have lots more LNG export infrastructure so that remove the bottleneck at the, at the export terminal. There, we sort of have fairly good line of sight. You know, we know what's coming online. Although I would say, quite frankly, uh, People could be surprised as, as far as how fast you could sanction new projects because people think about the lead time of you know three to five years to build some of these trains. You know that's not done. That that that's been in a world where capital has been fairly tight and permitting has been difficult, and the Army Corps of Engineers takes its time. But you know if all of a sudden we all get behind you know getting gas to Europe, I think we could be surprised at how fast stuff comes on. But it's not going to come on in the next six months, right? Even even if we all get behind it, 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 it has some lead time there. Um, the second, of course, could be if domestic demand increases. And so that would be, you know, we develop more industry in the United States to take advantage of this huge energy uh, price gap in the rest of the world. Again, I think there's some lead time there, but probably on the margin that could happen a little bit. And I think the biggest one that no one talks about is, well, what happens if gas supply in the United States peters out. And I don't mean collapses, I just mean stops growing, you know, because we we basically are in a balanced market today. Um, and we are bringing on some new LNG infrastructure in the next year. And if we can't fill that, then, then we could have spare capacity. You don't have a bottleneck anymore and prices could converge almost overnight. And so we started this big project and we said, okay, well, let's look, you know, talk to the Wall Street community, talk to the energy analysts, how much more does the Marcellus have? And nobody had even studied the question. You know, there's just this view that the Marcellus could go on and on and on forever. And actually, when you look at some of the big fields, the Haynesville, the Marcellus, um, they are showing signs of being middle-aged as well, similar to the oil shales. And, you know, people forget, these are big fields. What we discovered in the oil shale side was basically like bringing on a new Saudi Arabia super major field set in the 1950s. And what we found in the gas side was the same. So it's like we had two Saudi Arabias found in the United States in 10 years, you know, massive, massive impact, but they're not infinite. And we actually do have some examples of early shale fields, the Barnett and the Fayetteville in particular, not as big as the Marcellus. And they went through their full life cycle. And we see they ramped up, then they started to have problems. They weren't able to really grow that much anymore. They plateaued for a while and then they rolled over just like a regular field was. And, you know, I can't emphasize this enough. The last 10 years, the feeling is that these shales can go on 
forever because the size of them was so big that that it almost was like they could. But but they are just regular fields like anything else. They do succumb to depletion like anything else. And I think we run the risk that perhaps we're getting close to that point now. So that's when we said, oh my goodness, you know, this could actually be a situation that happens, you know, according to some of these numbers that we look at in the next, you know, six to nine months. Now with natural gas, demand is really impacted by weather. And so, you know, it, it's sometimes, you know, a frustrating element. And that's why, if, again, on your top traders uh, listening in today, your top natural gas traders will know very, very well, you know, it's not a market for the faint of heart when you trade natural gas, because you can get these swings in the weather that overwhelm everything. So if we have a super mild winter, um, you know, maybe we push that out. It doesn't change the long-term dynamic at play, but if we have a normal winter or if we have a colder than normal winter, uh, then you could potentially have that moment of convergence as near as the fourth quarter, you know, in, in December of this year. So, um, you know, not, not, not a certainty this year, but definitely a possibility, massive implications if it does happen. And your last question as far as how to play it, you know, people ask all the time, do you want to own the LNG infrastructure? Do you want to own? I, I think, look, if you ran anything like that, higher gas prices with a convergence scenario through your models. What you want to own is the U.S. gas producers. Why do I say that? Well, today gas is, you know, in the high eights in the United States. If I look at what some of the high quality Marcellus companies are pricing in in their stock price, they're pricing in like 375. So even if prices just stay where they are today, the case for those gas producers is astronomical from a net present value perspective. You know, these companies are all three, four, five baggers. I say all, you have to be selective because a lot of the companies are starting to run out of their best acreage, but I'm talking about the best ones and go look on our website. We disclose our holdings. That, that's how we like to look for gas companies, whoever we think has the best remaining inventory. But for those companies, if gas prices, you know, go, go to four bucks, that's basically the stock price. If they stay where they are at eight, they're, you know, three, four baggers. If they were to go to 20, I mean, these stocks could go up 20 fold, you know? So as far as how do you play it, I don't see anything else in the Ellen, uh, in the natural gas ecosystem that could go up 20 fold if we're right. So I think you want to own the molecule in the US. You're not overpaying for it. In fact, gas prices could fall a lot. And I'm sure those gas stocks would go down if gas prices fell, but but still they would be justified from a value perspective based on their net present value, even at four bucks. That's awesome. Um, should we switch over to the demand side, Niels? Yeah, let's do that in a sense. And 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 we'll, I mean, I'll let you dig into it um, as well. But but in in a sense, I just wanted to maybe ask kind of an, an extreme question here, Adam, and that is, I mean, it sounds. Or, I mean, I could be wrong here, but it kind of sounds to me that kind of your big picture case is that we've come to the end of a world with where energy is in abundance, right? For all of these different reasons. And now we're going to dig into the demand side. But I also remember you did this great um, video uh, that everybody could go and check out the kind of the history of energy. And if there isn't abundance energy or abundant energy, then the world might be slightly different for the next, I don't know how long this will take before it, it, it kind of plays itself out because we've kind of had to have abundance of energy to make all the progress we've, we've, we've achieved. Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's so true. And, you know, I, it sounds very pessimistic, but I do think there's solutions. And I think, you know, to, to, to skip forward to the end, I think that nuclear power is a major, major solution because it's extremely energy efficient uh, and it does address our carbon needs. And so as opposed to windmills and solar panels, and we talk about why we don't like those, uh, but they require so much energy to actually make the energy itself that, that we just can't sustain our standard of living. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in areas that go down that path why they're sort of unable to keep things going. You know, that, that's a real glossing over of, of lots of different problems in different countries. But, you know, we could talk about the specifics everywhere, but really the gist of it, you know, Germany has doubled its electricity generating base. South Africa has, you know, two and a half times increased it, and they both have huge blackouts. You know, so I think at some point somebody has to say, well, wait a second, maybe, maybe there's something inherently wrong here because you could say maybe it's a malinvestment to double your energy grid, but you would expect to at least have lots of energy at the end of that. And, and so, you know, we have to start being 
realistic here about the energy efficiency of what we're doing. But you're absolutely right. You know, the last 10 years have seen a peak to trough decline of approximately 90% in every major form of energy. Uranium prices went from 140 down to you know, 19. Um, coal prices fell 95% peak to trough. Oil obviously went negative, so that fell more than 100%. Um, and, and gas prices uh, fell from $15 in MCF down to $1.50, so 90% decline. And you know, we all enjoyed that. We benefited from that hugely. And and I think actually one of the most important stories of the last 10 or 15 years that has not been told is just how much we did benefit from that. You know, that was a, we'll look back, that was a very benign period. We just didn't have to worry about energy. And so that's why I think, you know, not to get too far afield, but that's why I think certain, um, you know, we, we look at like what's proliferated in the last 10 years. It's all been very energy intensive pursuits. And, you know, I, I, wind and solar, obviously, electric vehicles, the batteries, to, the energy required to manufacture those batteries is staggering. Um, you know, we've decided to go from, uh, you know, fiat currencies to cryptocurrencies, which are unbelievably energy intensive. Uh, and, and I joke that even, you know, even the uh, pastimes of the super wealthy have gone from racing sailboats around the world to shooting themselves into space. So, you know, that that's become just unbelievably energy intensive as well. Um, but you know, unfortunately, we don't have that anymore. That was a luxury we enjoyed. We had this surplus, um, not to sound too too dramatic, but we, we squandered that surplus. We didn't uh, take that surplus and invest in the right things. We invested in things that, that depend on abundant energy. People still don't get it. You know, I'll just give you a quick example with some numbers here. Um, we talk about the energy return on energy invested. So you put energy into a system and energy comes out the other side. And the energy return on energy invested of oil and gas is about 30 to one. So what that means is you consume 3% of the energy in an oil and gas ecosystem making that energy. So if a, Mars, uh, if a Permian shale well does a million barrels a day, you're gonna consume you know, 30,000 barrels to produce that oil and you'll be left with 900 and you know, 93, 7,000, whatever it is. Um, when you look at wind and solar, that drops the best solar and wind you're talking about unbuffered. So before you put the batteries to back it up, you're at about 10 to one. But there's something that people don't fully appreciate. That oil well gives you 30 to one, but it gives you most of that energy in the first five years. So basically you put in your one unit of energy on day one and you get six units of energy back per year for five years, and then the well goes to zero. That's a huge simplification, right? But that's basically what you're getting. You get it all front loaded. So the year that you drill an oil well, you get a huge net increase in energy. You put one unit in, you get six units out. It's really, really good. When you do that on the wind and the solar side, you're talking, like I said, keep the numbers nice and round, 10 to one over a 20 year life. People say oh, 25 years, but I'll do 20 years just to keep the numbers, okay? It doesn't change the impact here. So now you're talking about an energy return on energy invested of 10 to one over 20 years, fairly steady through those 20 years, meaning you get, for your first unit you put in, you get half a unit back that year, okay? We have an energy crisis. We don't have enough energy today. And yet people are saying that the answer is that we have to get away from oil and gas and invest more in renewables. It will only make this problem worse. This is not a carbon issue. This isn't a global warming issue. For the time being, we need efficient sources of energy to get us over this hump. And then we can debate the rest later. Before you jump in here, Jim, I just need to say as a Dane um, that in Denmark, they have now agreed with the EU to build something like in one place, um, 2,000 windmills, offshore windmills. And in another one, they just announced over the summer they're going to build another 1,700, 1,800 windmills offshore, which of course will take a decade to do before they even start um, producing anything. I just wish next time you go to Europe, Adam, maybe you could swing by Copenhagen and just pay them a visit and explain some of these things because they clearly don't seem to realize what they're up to at the moment. I mean, let's. I think we can all agree, by the way, just so there's no uh, doubt here. I mean, I think we all want a green world. It's just the way we get there that seems to be the key point of, of difference, I guess. Abs uh, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think that we put too much CO2 into the atmosphere, and I think that that's resulted in temperatures that have 
that have increased. And I think that um, if we can avoid that, we should. I, I actually do think, maybe I'll say something more, a little controversial. I think if we have no good way to reduce carbon, and the question is, do we impact the standard of living for the you know billions of people in the developing world? I don't know that that as you know Westerners living a very high quality of life, that that's an ethical decision that I feel prepared to make, but that's a topic for a completely other day. You know, I don't know how you go to somebody who's dealing with you know 20% child mortality rates in sub-Saharan Africa and say, look, you know, we've really dug into this and we just, we can't go down this path anymore. So we're gonna stop energy development. I think the guy's like, what are you talking about? You know, um, but uh, I, I, it's, luckily that's a false dichotomy because um, there are energy efficient things that we can be doing to improve energy return on energy invested and reduce carbon. There's things in the steel world, there's things in the power world with nuclear. We just, for whatever reason, don't seem to wanna really give them a fair look. And I think that's beginning to change now. So I think I'm actually very optimistic, believe it or not. Yeah, mor morally or otherwise, uh, it will be forced upon us at some point if we do not deal with the issue. But there are cheat codes, as you have mentioned, and, and nuclear comes to mind, right? Um, you know, uh, obviously, the uh, the European Union, is, Union uh, rat ratified in its green taxonomy, um, you know, making nuclear a major part of that, despite kind of German opposition for a while. Uh, we've seen France, UK, Netherlands, even Japan now um, really uh, embark on new nuclear buildouts, uh, if not extending what they already had. So public sentiment is clearly shifting towards nuclear. What do you think, uh, you know, the odds of that ramping up? Obviously, the problem with nuclear here is uh, it takes a long time to, to build out some of that um, that that infrastructure. Um, you've mentioned Gen, Gen 4 reactors being a potential solution to, to some of that. Can you speak to that and, and talk again uh, to some of the best investment opportunities if you do believe uh, nuclear is uh, kind of the future and, and that we're going to get to a place where nuclear really solves a lot of these problems for us. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're you're absolutely right that you know nuclear is long lead time. So that's not going to fix, you know, a Russia incursion into the Ukraine energy caused issue in 2022-2023. But if you sort of take a step back and you do think through the next 10 years and beyond and where you want to see things uh, approach, you know, net zero and what have you, um, you know, I think that nuclear, you, you either have to lower your standard of living dramatically, which I am completely opposed to. I think it's unethical and ridiculous. And, and anyway, we just society doesn't move in that direction. Or uh, you need to keep emitting CO2 or you need to embrace nuclear. Like those, those are your three options. There's nothing else coming. Um, and, and so uh, I think that the quicker people realize that, the better. The, there's three issues as... Uh, with nuclear power. Uh, two of them I think are perceived issues in the sense that I don't think they really uh, are issues. And one is, one is cost and that's a real issue. You know, nuclear power costs have gone up astronomically. Basically only China and the Koreans can bring on a new third generation light water reactor, which is what we've been building now for the last 30 years. Um, the French, the Americans, everyone's gone broke trying to do it. And people have largely dismantled their nuclear engineering businesses over the last 10 years. Part of that's probably because economies of scale, we haven't built very many of them. Uh, also, there's been huge scrutiny, rightfully so, I'm okay with that. You know, we probably should triple check everything in a nuclear reactor. I should say that, you know, the nuclear industry is unbelievably safe. And so you go back over time, there's been extremely, like the number of deaths in the nuclear power business is nothing per megawatt hour. The more people die in, in coal uh, mining accidents every year uh, by, by an order of magnitude. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there's, you're not even talking apples to, to apples anymore. Um, but the second two things that I would talk about would be, a, you know, per perceived safety issue. So the idea that these reactors could melt down and release radioactive material into the environment. Again, the track record's really good, but the perception is, is people are worried. And then the third thing is, is waste. What do you do with the nuclear waste? You know, both from a proliferation perspective, could people steal it one day and make bombs? And then where do you store it? Now, France is, has addressed those issues. The United States has a workable solution to waste and safety kind of speaks for itself. But these are the three big factors that, that are on people's minds. Some of these new fourth generation small modular reactors uh, address all of those issues. And I won't go into too much of it today. Most of the companies that are advancing these technologies are private. Um, we've met with with several of them. Um, I think that, that in particular, I feel 
comfortable to say, you know, out of all of them, uh, the the designs that are being pursued by a company called TerraPower, based in Washington State and financed uh, by Bill Gates, and you know, lots has been written about them. Their reactors are really, 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 really exciting. Um, they address head-on the issue of cost. They are safe in the sense you cannot melt down this reactor. Um, and as far as waste, you know, conceivably over time, some of the stuff that they're working on could really reduce the amount of waste uh, by an order of magnitude or more. And from a cost perspective, the costs are going to come in well below current generation nuclear. So people have been working on it. It's been quiet. It's been dark days for them for the last, you know, 10 years post Fukushima. But I think I think there's actually some really exciting things happening uh, in that industry. For right now, it's all happening in private companies, nothing, you know, no real public traded opportunities there. Uh, but, but I think that that is... Um, that, that there's some really exciting stuff happening. I think we're, we're running out of time. Um, uh, I, we may have to do a separate episode on just demand. Uh, we, you know, we covered supply in about an hour, but uh, we may have to have you back to cover demand. Uh, obviously, that's the big other remaining question. Uh, I'd love that. I'm happy to do that. That it's Fed Day, right? Uh, that, that, yeah. that has something to say about demand. Exactly. Let's let's agree to do that um, uh, relatively soon because not only do I want to talk about uh, demand, but I also actually want to talk about the other crisis, which is the uh, food crisis, where I know you've done some great work uh, on that. But Adam, another tremendous conversation. Thank you so much for, for your time today. It's always great to get an update on these very important uh, issues. Uh, so thanks for doing that. And of course, by the way, make sure you follow, subscribe to Adam's work, uh, and you can, of course, find some uh, links in the show notes. And uh, as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro and energy-driven world, uh, and it is perhaps more important uh, than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as the Global Macro Series continue. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.